0: Welcome to Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. In May of 1950, Said and Miriam Ovadia and their daughters Simcha and Baby Zahara boarded an airplane bound for Israel. After five long months subsisting in squalid conditions in the Hashed transit camp in Yemen, the Ovadias, along with thousands of their fellow Yemeni Jews, were finally embarking on the last leg of their journey to the Promised Land, the newly established state of Israel. As the plane picked up speed down the runway and lifted off, Miriam Avadya felt her stomach rise up into her throat. But it wasn't just the alien sensation of being born aloft for the first time. A nurse from the Jewish agency, who had stayed with the Avadyas in the transit camp and was accompanying them to Israel, had insisted on holding baby Zahara during the flight, and Miriam could hear her crying.
1: In the middle of the flight, she went to the nurse and she said, please, I need to nurse her. I have milk for her. I need to nurse her, and she wouldn't give it to her. And she said that she was crying and she heard the baby crying and I'm kind of describing a very traumatic scene for her.
0: This is Shoshana Manmoni Gerber, an associate professor of communication and journalism at Suffolk University in Boston, and author of the book Israeli Media and the Framing of Internal Conflict. In the book, she recounts that when the plane landed, The nurse, still carrying Zohara, got into a taxi and sped away. The director of the Rosh Ha'ayin Absorption Camp, where the Ovadyas and many other immigrants were taken, told the distraught family that Zohara was being taken to the hospital for a routine checkup. A few days later, when Miriam asked about her daughter, the director told her that Zohara had died. The Ovadias never saw a death certificate and were never told where their daughter had been buried.
1: Sometime later, she said that she saw this nurse at some point in Tel Aviv and recognized her. She said, you took my daughter, and she confronted her. And she wrote to her something on a piece of paper, and she said, she's in this place in Tel Aviv, and gave her a note, and um, they immediately went there, and it was nothing. There was nothing there. She gave her something that was not. There was no baby, no hospital there, no nothing.
0: The Ovadia's story, and many more like it, of babies being taken from Yemenite families and never returned, have collectively come to be known as the Yemenite Children Affair. According to the testimonies, thousands of Jewish immigrant families from the Middle East, North Africa, and the Balkans, known as Mizrahi Jews, lost children during the 1950s. The Yemenite Children Affair has been in the news a lot during the last few years as activists and writers continue to investigate rumors that many of the children did not in fact die, but were given to other families in Israel and America, Ashkenazi families of European origin who could give them a better life. It's a disturbing and intriguing story, but the Yemenite children affair is really only part of a much larger story. The story of Mizrahi Jews in Israel and the widespread discrimination they faced at the hands of the Zionist establishment As the young state struggled to find its footing and live up to its own ideal as a national home for all Jews. Our story begins in Israel in the early 1950s. In the wake of the War of Independence in 1948, after the newly formed Jewish state warded off attacks by the surrounding Arab nations, hundreds of thousands of Jews from the Middle East, North Africa and Asia poured into Israel, leaving behind nearly all of their possessions and the tight-knit Jewish communities they had known all their lives. Upon arriving in Israel, most of the immigrants were housed in ma'abarot, absorption camps, where the new arrivals lived in hastily erected canvas tents.
2: The kind of conditions of the camps were pretty horrific. A lot of times there would be flooding. There was one winter in which uh, it snowed and that kind of destroyed all of these camps.
0: This is Brian Roby, an assistant professor of Judaic studies at the University of Michigan, and author of the book *The Mizrahi Era of Rebellion: Israel's Forgotten Civil Rights Struggle, 1948 to 1966*. He says that the rough conditions in the Ma'abarot were especially difficult for Mizrahi Jews because, in their countries of origin, many had enjoyed relatively comfortable lives as members of the middle and even upper class but arguably even more difficult for Mizrahi immigrants, was being seen by the Ashkenazi establishment as culturally backward outsiders.
3: They saw the Jews from the Middle Eastern state as people who are equal in principle, because all of us are Jews, but you are suffering from a very problematic cultural attitude. This is Avi Shilon, a scholar at Hebrew
0: University and the author of biographies of Ben-Gurion and Menachem Begin.
3: For them, the Jews from the Middle Eastern state brought with them the Arab culture. And for the Zionist establishment, the Arab culture was something that was perceived very inferior to the Western culture.
1: They saw them as brown people who could potentially replace the Arabs. And it, they said that in so many words.
0: As scholar Vincent Calvetti-Wolf notes, this prejudice stemmed in part from the fact that most Mizrahi Jews were religious. Many of the, uh, the influential uh, labor Zionists
4: that formed the the first governments of Israel uh, were, of course, secular, and they approached deeply religious Jews as... Um, kind of primitive and and, and underdeveloped and and that religious feeling was uh, itself kind of a, a sign of that.
0: Furthermore, the Ashkenazi establishment saw their Mizrahi brethren through the lens of the Zionist ideal of the new Jew, the modern, secular, polar opposite of the helpless diaspora Jews who had so recently been slaughtered in the concentration camps. Becoming a new Jew meant leaving behind old world religious practices and customs and being reborn by working the land, an ideology that made little sense to traditional Mizrahi
3: Jews. For the Mizrahim, to do such thing, it was like deteriorating to a low status because for them, the people who have made this kind of work while they were in the Middle Eastern state were the Arabs. So they could not understand how come They are sent to work the land while it wasn't a Jewish profession in the diaspora. Mizrahi
0: Jews had other disadvantages too. For one, they hadn't played a significant role in the Zionist movement, and so they lacked connections among the Ashkenazi-dominated Zionist establishment in Israel. Plus, most Mizrahi Jews didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke a variety of Arabic dialects and other languages unfamiliar to Ashkenazim, whose mother tongue was primarily Yiddish. In short, beyond being Jews, Ashkenazim and Mizrahim had little in common culturally, socially, and politically. This disconnect, combined with the openly derogatory and frankly bigoted attitudes of Ashkenazim towards Mizrahim, had long lasting consequences. While Ashkenazi newcomers were soon relocated from the transit camps to permanent housing and choice locations, many Mizrahi immigrants remained in the Ma'abarot for years. And as the absorption camps eventually became permanent development towns, the Mizrachim clustered there fell further behind in terms of education and employment. Within a decade, the vast majority of Mizrachim had been relegated to permanent second-class status. Mizrahi Jews may have been relatively powerless, but they weren't submissive. Starting in the early 50s, Mizrahim protested against the Zionist establishment, demanding equal treatment.
2: One of the main ones, or the more visible ones, were the kind of almost daily uh, bread and work protest, in which people would chant, you know, Lehem a bread work um, demanding from the government or the municipality in which they lived in to provide, you know, better living conditions in the mob world. And these often would be brutally repressed by the, the Israel police.
4: The general sense was uh, that these were illegitimate protests because they were not in the interest of of unity of the the Jewish nation.
0: In one extraordinary incident, Jewish immigrants from India, living in the town of Beersheva, protested against their living conditions.
2: They come from British India, and then now it's India, Pakistan, and they felt as if living in Beersheva was not appropriate for them. You know, their children were not being educated properly, various other things, and so they held a hunger strike. As a result of that, they, uh, the government at least let about 112 Jews from former British India return to India and Pakistan at the time.
0: Generally though, Mizrahi protests were unable to gain much traction and ended up having little effect. But one July night in 1959, in the Wadi Salib neighborhood of Haifa, that began to change. Wadi Salib was a poor neighborhood a crime-ridden slum, really, where mostly Moroccan Jews lived in cramped, debilitated houses that had belonged to Palestinians who fled during the war in 1948. With little opportunity for employment, many of the men spent their days aimless and their nights drinking. Unrest was in the air. And on the night of July 9th, it erupted into violence when a drunk Moroccan Jew, Yaakov Al-Karif,
3: began causing a disturbance. And someone complained that his uh, acting violently. So the police came. And the two police officers
2: of uh, Ashkenazi origin, I believe, and they claimed to have tried to fire to uh, a warning shot at him or towards him, uh, but instead they actually shot him.
0: Al-Karif was taken to the hospital and soon word spread that he'd been murdered. The next day Mizrahi activist David ben led a mass protest. Hundreds of protesters gathered outside the police station where the policemen from the night before were headquartered, shouting and accusing the police of murdering an innocent man. Never mind that El kharif had actually survived the shooting. The fuse had been lit, and soon the demonstration erupted into a riot. The mob marched toward Haifa's wealthier neighborhoods, where they set cars on fire and smashed shop windows. Soon, violent protests erupted in Mizrahi neighborhoods across Israel. The Wadi Salib riot, as it's come to be known, was the first large-scale violent protest by Mizrahi Jews, and it shook the Zionist establishment to the core. As the protests continued throughout the
2: summer of 1959, the government could no longer ignore Mizrahi grievances. There was an accelerated kind of move to take people out of the Mabarot, which were now ten shacks. Beyond that, at least, you do have is a public recognition and media attention towards the fact that maybe there is discrimination against Mizrahi Jews in the country. And what does that mean for Israeli society? What does that mean for the future of Israel in that case, or even the nature of the state? To find out, the government established the Etzioni Commission, named
0: for its leader, Haifa Magistrate Court Judge Moshe Etzioni. The commission's purpose was to investigate the El karif shooting and, more broadly, to determine if there
2: was institutionalized discrimination against Mizrahi Jews in Israeli society. Their conclusion, very problematically so, was that no, it's not something that's institutional. It's something that um, it's just a lot of different individuals throughout the country who are being... Uh, discriminatory towards Mizrahi Jews in a sense. But to say that it's not institutional, it's kind of strange. You know, if it's something that um, goes on in a number of different places, a number of different contexts, then where does this come from, right? You know, it's something that must be in the air or the way that the government kind of like thinks about Mizrahi Jews may be affecting how they're treated either in the labor offices or, you know, the labor market or in housing policies and various things like that.
0: By the mid-1960s, the quality of life for Mizrahi Jews in Israel hadn't much improved. Most still languished in dusty development towns and in poor, neglected neighborhoods and larger cities. Opportunities for better housing and employment were minimal. Mizrahi men and women were often relegated to menial labor and low-paying jobs. Their kids received substandard education. And the same demeaning stereotypes of Mizrahim as unsophisticated indolent and poor prevailed but in 1967 the Ashkenazi establishment got another shock to the system when some of the Yemenite families whose children had years before been taken away began receiving notices that their supposedly dead children must report for army duty once again rumors began to circulate that the children had been kidnapped and put up for adoption inspired by the Wadi Salib protests a few years before the Yemenite community took action.
1: They started the first Yemenite community organization that started to collect testimonies. And when they had several hundred testimonies, they were pressuring the government.
2: In
0: response, the government created the Balul-Minkowski Commission to examine the Yemenite family's stories. The commission collected testimonies and eyewitness accounts, and after examining 342 cases, concluded that in 316 of the cases the children had indeed died. In only a handful of the cases where the parents couldn't be contacted according to the commission, their children had been adopted by other families. And 24 cases were inconclusive. In other words, there had been no conspiracy. No government-led plan to steal babies away from Yemenite families in the Mabarat
3: The outcome was that, okay, it is only rumors. There was no a premeditated plan to kidnap, it wasn't like that, Israel was in total mess, the registration was not really correct and as it should be, so this is why from time to time you couldn't find the grave or the real name, it was really a mess, but generally speaking there was not no such thing as kidnap and we can find the, the, the bones of the children in mass graves, but the story is that they came here very sick. We tried to save them, but they found their death in a very early age. We are sorry. We have nothing to do. The Yemenite families and the
0: Mizrahi community generally were highly critical of the commission. Because it was framed
4: as an a, uh, a inquiry rather than an investigation. They had... No subpoena power, no, no ability to command or, or force witnesses to appear. And it also was, was not transparent. It, it was conducted largely through a, a behind closed doors. These families felt that you know, this is not a format that is going to give us
0: justice. Still, the commission brought renewed attention to the Yemenite children affair and helped keep the issue of discrimination against Mizrahim in the public eye. By the late 1960s, the Mizrahi community was becoming more organized its leaders paid close attention to and drew inspiration from the civil rights movement in the United States. Yahu al-Yashar, a Mizrahi intellectual and activist, used the American civil rights movement as a model.
2: He starts writing a lot of different publications in English as well as in Hebrew. He starts writing these various different publications and One in particular was kind of fascinating, in which he kind of sent it to members of the U.S. Congress to ask them to look into, you know, what is going on in Israel, in a sense, using a lot of the kind of rhetoric that's used within an American society as well, referring to Mizrahi political leaders who are not really representative of the Mizrahi public as Uncle Tom's in this case. Or saying uh, later in the 60s, using the kind of uh, formula or the slogan that we too shall overcome in reference to Mizrahim uh, being uh, at some point able to kind of overcome the discriminatory practices used against them.
0: Ironically, Martin Luther King talked about Israel as a model of democracy and integration, where Jews from different backgrounds built a nation and lived together in harmony. Other civil rights leaders, though, such as James Nabrit Jr., then president of Howard University, who visited Israel in the mid-60s, had a different take.
2: He says explicitly that this is a serious problem, the issue between Ashkenazim and Mizrahim, and that maybe they're not calling it racism or, you know, institutionalized discrimination at the time. But you can't hide from it for too long if when you come to a country, you see that everyone in a high socioeconomic position is light or lighter skin and everyone in a lower socioeconomic position is darker skin. You know, it's something that you can't really you know, hide from after, when it's so apparent.
0: By the early 1970s, a second generation of Mizrahi Jews were especially drawn to the far-left, militant black power elements of the civil rights movement. In the desperately poor Musrara neighborhood of Jerusalem, Mostly Moroccan Jewish teens and young adults who'd been rejected from the military due to having criminal records were inspired by the Black Panthers, a paramilitary movement founded in Oakland, California in the mid-60s to combat police brutality against African-Americans. The Moroccan youth could relate. They too were often harassed by the police. And just like their parents, who were kept down in the Ma'ar Barot and denied full and equal participation in Israeli society, these second-generation Mizrahim live life stained by crime and poverty with little hope for the future. Inspired by the Black Panthers' swagger and militant rhetoric, they formed their own Israeli
3: version of the Black Panthers. And they looked at the entire issue of Zionism totally differently. They started to ask questions like, How come no one speaks about the legacy of the Mizrahic Jews in the curriculum for the high school? How come you perceived us as an Arabs while you sent us to the IDF to fight against the Arabs? They were much more radicals. They were much more aggressive. Following the example of the
0: American Black Panthers' free breakfast for school children program, the Israeli Panthers improvised a free milk program that involved stealing milk bottles left on the doorsteps of well-off families and redistributing them throughout Musrara and other poor neighborhoods. They protested what they saw as the injustice of new immigrants from the former Soviet Union receiving better housing and education than native-born Mizrahi Jews. And they posted leaflets around Jerusalem reading, Enough! Enough of not having work. Enough of having to sleep 10 to a room. Enough of looking at big apartments they are building for new immigrants. Enough of broken promises from the government. How long are we going to keep silent? We are protesting for our right to be treated just as any other citizen in the country. These activities got the attention of the media and especially of the government, who saw the Panthers as a direct threat not only to basic law and order, but to the core Zionist principle of Jewish unity and to allegiance to the Zionist program. Establishment leaders were especially perturbed that the group had taken the name Black Panthers, particularly since the American Panthers were often accused of being anti-Semitic. A lot of the Panthers would note specifically
4: that they really kind of enjoyed the discomfort the name caused a state, especially Golda Meir, who in her her one meeting with uh, the group leadership kept asking why this name why this name why not something else the fact that she had so much anxiety about it kind of brought home to them like this this is, this is why the name because it, it it makes you makes you nervous and we
0: we want you to be nervous because we have many bones to pick with you Things came to a head on the evening of May 18th, 1971, a date that became known infamously as the Night of the Panthers. The Panthers mobilized around 7,000 people to march toward Kikar Zion, or Zion Square, in the heart of Jerusalem to protest against racial discrimination. Almost immediately, the police, who had denied the protesters a permit, advanced in force.
4: Seven hours of clashes between uh, protesters and and the police. Police pulled out water cannons. Uh, They ran people down um, with horses. Uh, More than 100 arrests. And many, many photos of acts of police brutality, of of, of police with their batons beating um, even young girls and and young teenage girls. And it really kind of uh, put the the panthers on the the state's radar but also kind of revealed that you know it's not just this small group of organizers the fact that they can mobilize so many people on very short notice shows that there is like a broader tension that
0: needs to be dealt with black panther protests continued throughout the spring and summer as did violent clashes with the police in late august the panthers staged another jerusalem rally featuring hand-lettered signs with crude depictions of Golda Meir telling the Prime Minister to get lost. Panther leaders made impassioned speeches condemning Golda and the Ashkenazi-dominated government. When asked what she thought of the Panthers, the Prime Minister is said to have stated, they're not very nice boys. Like their American counterparts, the Israeli Panthers ultimately failed to achieve political or social change on a large scale. But like the Wadi Salib protesters several years earlier, they did raise awareness of the plight of Mizrahi Jews.
3: There was nothing that really happened because of the Black Panthers. They had a lot of uh, riots and demonstrations, and uh, uh, some of them tried to establish a party and to run to the Knesset, but they didn't get enough support for even uh, having one seat in the Knesset. But later on, some of them found places in different kind of parties like the communist parties and really helped to put the Mizrahi problems on the agenda. By the late
0: 1970s, after decades of Labour Party rule, Israeli politics and society experienced a seismic shift when, for the first time, the conservative Likud party, led by Menachem Begin, took charge. Mizrahi Jews, who had voted in large numbers for Likud, felt newly empowered. Although there were very few Mizrahi professors in the universities, and there had never been a Mizrahi prime minister, as the 70s rolled into the 1980s, the prospects for Mizrahi Jews
3: were improving. Many of the Mizrachim started to open, you know, small stores, to be small merchants, and to be independent, and to succeed in moving from the poorest neighborhood to the big cities. So in the 80s, it was a totally different situation for the Mizrahim. Yemenite Jews,
0: meanwhile, had never stopped agitating for the government to come clean about the Yemenite children affair, organizing letter writing campaigns and publishing accounts of lost children in Mizrahi publications. In 1988, Likud Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir appointed Judge Moshe Shalgi to head a second commission to re-examine the testimonies gathered by the earlier commission. After four years, the Shalgi commission came to a similar conclusion. In most cases, the children had died, although as many as 65 cases remained a mystery. This time, though, a handful of Knesset members openly questioned the commission's findings giving new life to the theory that more than just a few of the children had been kidnapped. Such rumors were still active in the Yemenite community and had especially captured the attention of Uzi Mishulam, a Yemenite rabbi who, since the late 70s, had been conducting his own private investigation into the affair.
1: He was, you know, in my eyes, like an early-day blogger, but using low-tech, okay? So we don't have internet yet, but he's doing, you know, we call them in Hebrew... It's leaflets, like alonim. So he's sending um, these with stories and with all kinds of numbers. And then he starts to publish. He has his own publication, which is, again, kind of within the tradition of the Yemenite communities, people who like to write. So he's writing. He's a very smart guy, but a little eccentric, very, very charismatic, very smart. Um, So he's starting to publish this evan Masu Abonim, it's called it's um it's a, it's a this publication and in those publication he writes you know he details cases of families and he bring, he uh, copies like the the uh, contradicting uh, notices that they got from the government
3: he claimed for years that there was a huge conspiracy by the Ashkenazi establishment to kidnap yemenite children from the balkan in order to do experiences on them in order, for example, to know what's going to be if Israel would suffer from a biological attack. He blamed the Zionist establishment of kidnapping kids because they wanted to gain money from rich uh, Holocaust uh, survivors who have not been able to raise children by themselves. He really blamed the Zionist establishment in the most outrageous allegation. For most Israelis, including many
0: Mizrahi Jews and many Yemenite Jews, Mishulam came across as a conspiracy theorist, not somebody to take entirely seriously. But the government kept a wary eye on Meshulam, especially once he began threatening to organize demonstrations at the Knesset.
1: And he said that he was going to raise awareness and he was going to send 10 publications with 10 videotapes. And he started to record. He was recording the stories. Again, think you know, social media. That's what he was doing. It was on VHS tapes. He was recording these um, testimonies of parents, and he was going to send that to um, the Knesset, to all the Knesset members and public, you know, authors and leaders. And, and he said, if they are not going to respond by the 10th one, and he told me, I'm going to do ten, 10 of these against the 10 plagues. So he was a religious man. He had a plan. And he said, if they're not going to do this, I am going to mount a protest in the Knesset.
0: But Mishulam never got the chance. To force the government's hand, he gathered weapons and disciples and hunkered down inside his house in the town of Yehud, hanging signs outside calling out the government for its crimes against Yemenite children and their families. As word spread, a squadron
3: of police arrived and surrounded the compound. And they say, we are going to be here and we can commit suicide or attack to the police, we still haven't decided until the state would be ready to establish a real inquiry about the story of the Yemenite children. Ultimately,
4: uh, one of the students came outside and and was shot by the police. Um, There was a raid, they were all arrested, and uh, sentenced to several years uh, in prison, and the, the media kind of framed Mishulam himself as kind of a uh, eccentric, uh, uh, crazy figure.
0: In the end, though, Mishulam did achieve his goal. In the wake of the standoff, the labor prime minister Yitzhak Rabin opened the files of the Shalgi commission and authorized a third commission to once again investigate the fate of the Yemenite children. As former Israel state archivist Yaakov Lozawick notes, this commission had considerably more investigative power than the first two commissions.
5: The third was a committee of, uh, an official committee of national inquiry. There's no, enti- there's no type of investigative committee in Israel with more th- authority and stature than that. It was headed by a judge of the Supreme Court, when he became unhealthy, he was replaced by another judge of the Supreme Court, uh, Kedmi, the first one was Cohen, the second one was Kedmi. Nevertheless, the commission's conclusions,
0: published in 2001, were in line with those of prior committees. The Cohen-Kedmi Commission examined 800 cases, and it found that in most of them, the Yemenite children had died, a very few were adopted, and several were still unaccounted for. The investigators found no evidence of a government conspiracy. But for Madmoni Gerber, focusing on the question of conspiracy missed the point
1: because what uh, I am saying and many other activists and scholars is that then if you read you know, one of the most profound studies, I think, done by uh, legal scholar Bo which is a very thorough analysis of just the last commission's report. And he said that they are so focused on trying to diffuse a claim of a conspiracy of an organized, institutionalized scheme to kidnap that they were not even seeing what they did find, which means that we're not believing the parents' testimonies.
0: In other words, even if there was no organized conspiracy to kidnap Yemenite children, the abrupt ways in which the children were taken and then declared to have died, and the general lack of communication and transparency suggests that, at the very least, the family stories of kidnapping should be taken seriously. But former head archivist Lozowick has a different take.
5: There are more than a thousand cases where there is simple, clear documentation by name saying here's the child coming into the hospital here's what the child is being diagnosed with here is a a cert, a, a, a registry of death from inside the hospital here is a, a registry of burial by somebody else it's not the it's a different staff the the, the Chevrakah who's burying people right that exists in more than 90% of the cases and indeed there are 7 or 8 or 9% where it doesn't exist and uh, you regret the fact that things were not as systematic and things were not preserved as well then as they should have been. But still, you're talking about more than 90% where the documentation does exist. And if the documentation does exist, and you want to insist that the children nonetheless were kidnapped and handed over somewhere, of which there's no sign for that happening, you have to say, well, where does the documentation that of their death comes from. It doesn't come from one office churning out lots of death certificates. It comes out from def- lots of different hospitals. It comes out from lots of different Hevro in different parts of the country. It comes out in lots of different handwritings. It comes out often within lists of people. The person uh, on the list above the name of the child and below the name of the child undoubtedly exist in, and there's nobody questioning the veracity of that list, just that one line in it. It doesn't make any sense.
0: For Losewick, the real tragedy of the Yemenite children affair is the indifference and dismissiveness with which the Yemenite families have been treated.
5: Indeed, there is no doubt in my mind that a large majority of these families were just brushed off in a way that we that it when you look at it nowadays it's horrifying they were just you know they they were they were treated as as if they're a thorn in somebody's side and they and they and, and they're screaming and shouting and they should just go away cuz we're busy and, and 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 just accept the thing that that, that what that what we said is true and that is indeed to my mind one of the worst Parts of this story, this indifference, this callousness, this—it's—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, 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 it's even more than that. In some in some cases, it's downright cruelty towards these parents who look different and don't speak Hebrew very well, if at all, and they dress oddly, and they're so different from us. And and and, and how are we going to correspond? How are we going to 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 talk to them? And let's just get Let have them go away. We're doing our best, and sometimes we don't succeed. Today,
0: by most accounts, the situation for Mizrahi Jews in Israel has vastly improved. Third and fourth generation Mizrahim have made significant strides, socially, economically and politically.
3: In a way, this problem has been solved in reality because Israel is much more about mixed families, many Mizrahim married Ashkenazim and vice versa, and you have other problems for example with the ethiopian jews or with the russian jews and the mizrachic issue is not if you taking a, if you are examining the middle class of israel it's not the most burning issue
0: to be sure gaps in opportunity and social achievement still exist jews of ashkenazi background still predominate in israeli universities the majority of judges on the higher courts and higher-ups in the security establishment are Ashkenazi. But as Manmoni Gerber notes, technology has given Mizrahi Israelis more opportunities to chart their own course and tell their own stories.
1: I think what has changed is something in the power imbalance shifted. If before that it was... People were at the mercy of the press, whatever the press wanted, however the press wanted to frame stories, uh, which was the biggest issue here. This is how it was framed. Now, with, with the emergence of social media and the third generation of younger people who are activists and kind of um, taking the power, using the technology that's now available to them to tell the narratives in their, their own narratives, in their own voice, that's a very powerful shift.
0: This is especially true concerning the Yemenite children affair, which is ongoing and in some ways more prominent than ever. In 2016, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declassified more than 400,000 documents related to the affair, most of which are now online. And the controversy hasn't dimmed. In 2017, several hundred protesters gathered in Tel Aviv, blocking traffic, and demanding that the government unseal what the protesters claimed are classified documents showing proof of the Yemenite baby's adoption. Meanwhile, a Yemenite activist organization, the Amram Association, carries on the work of Uzi Mishulam, collecting testimonies from Yemenite and other Mizrahi families and posting them online. Articles about the affair have recently appeared in major newspapers, including the New York Times... Several documentaries about the Yemenite babies have been produced over the past few years, and according to The Hollywood Reporter, a TV series about the affair is in the works. The various articles and documentaries and online testimonies portray Israeli society in a pretty negative light. In fact, a lot of what you've heard in this episode paints a mostly unflattering portrait of how the Zionist establishment, from its earliest days, in many ways failed to live up to the ideal of creating a state equally welcome to all Jews, no matter their country of origin or the shade of their skin. And so, I think it's important to be clear. At a time when pro-Palestinian anti-Zionists feel ever more empowered to condemn Israel as an illegitimate racist state— And when pro-Israel supporters too often reject legitimate criticism of Israeli policies as anti-Semitic, we need to recognize the legacy of ethnic strife between Ashkenazi and Mizrahi Jews in Israel for what it is, a central but hardly defining or damning characteristic of a complex, imperfect, evolving society. And if we really want to understand that society and how it's evolved— we have to be willing to take an honest
2: look at its imperfections and true character. On one hand, I think, you know, it changes how Anglophone Jews, uh, both Zionists and non-Zionists in a sense, understand what Israeli society is like. There tends to be this very homogenous understanding of who Israelis are, what its society is like, um, which is very problematic. And so um, everything ends up being condensed into the framework of the conflict. People think about it as, oh, well, it's Israelis versus Palestinians without recognizing that, well, within both contexts, there's something going on between Israelis. There's something going on between Palestinians as well that's also informing what is going on between the two different parties in this kind of international conflict. That does
0: it for this episode of Adventures in Jewish Studies. Be sure to check out our other episodes and, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on any podcast app. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish Studies membership organization and features an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members, as well as public programming. Visit associationforjewishstudies.org for more information on what we do, to learn about joining if you're a Jewish Studies scholar, or to find out how to bring a Jewish Studies scholar to your community. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Sheer.